0: Welcome back to another episode of the State of Love and Trust, a Pearl Jam podcast featuring yours truly, Jason Carapesi, alongside, as always, Paul Guglieri. Paul, here we are, another week, another episode, and we are kind of diving back into our more usual fare. Um, we're going to be looking at songwriters today. We've chosen um, uh, Jeff and Matt previously, focusing on our what we think are their best Um, written songs and when we say best written songs we mean like they've written the music they've written the words and that's that that's it and sometimes they might have a co-writer but but more often than not they'll have the whole thing to themselves so that'll be edward jerome vetter today but first as they say but first we need you to subscribe to wherever you get these podcasts so spotify or apple or google or stitcher Rate and review per usual would be lovely. Thank you very much. And our first little segment here, there's been a little bit of news here and there. Um, late last week, Ed did a couple of songs for uh, a Salesforce live stream. That's like the most corporate thing I could possibly think of, but there was that. <laughs> um, we are just a couple of days away or, or day, actually a day away from uh, the big EB research venture, venture into Cure's Live stream. Um,
1: I I think we're supposed to get a new track,
0: right? A new track, yeah. Didn't he tease that? He did, he did. There's also a song called, yeah, there's a song called Say Hi. I don't know if that's the new one or if that's a redo of something that's been kind of out there. It's Mm -hmm. kind of hard for me to piece that together. But uh, that'll be happening. A whole bunch of guests. And oh, by the way, our friends in Black Circle doing a pre-show at 7 Eastern, 4 Pacific. How about that?
1: Be there, be square.
0: Mm -hmm. And uh, so there you go. So a little bit of news. But also, Paul, you uncovered a bit of news from last week that that sparked my interest. Can you explain to me what you showed me?
1: I showed you the tour that could have been but was not. Ah, what was that? Well, it, it turns out that Guns N' Roses and Pearl Jam apparently might have both been down to tour together in 1993 with you 2
0: which the hurdles.
1: Yes, exactly. I mean, you, you could easily say that that would have been the most like the ultimate mega tour of mega tours from the 90s.
0: Now, um, why, why did that not happen? Well, so think?
1: according to Guns and Roses manager, Doug Goldstein.
0: Former or current?
1: Uh, ex-manager. Ex-manager, Doug Goldstein. He was interviewed by uh, Appetite for Distortion Show. And uh, he was talking all GNR, obviously. And he he dropped this little nugget that Axel, you know, wanted to do this tour of Pearl Jam, which I thought was interesting because, you know, at the time there was this, everybody made a big deal out of the whole Nirvana Pearl Jam rivalry Mm -hmm. that... I don't even know if that really qualifies as an actual rivalry, but because I don't think Pearl Jam was that really media created. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. Media created, but uh, you know, Nirvana basically just clotheslined guns N' roses from the top of the musical mountaintop. And, Mm -hmm. and that whole sound that was encapsulated by GNR kind of went down with them after that. And thus was the birth of, of what the media also dubbed grunge, but Nonetheless, Axel wanted, wanted to do this tour, right? And so uh, apparently, uh, when Doug Goldstein was asked about this conversation, he said that Kelly Curtis, Pearl Jam's former manager, as of just like a month ago, right? Mm-hmm, yep. Apparently, Kelly Curtis didn't even bother to tell this idea to the band. Like, he just rejected it immediately.
0: Well, what did Doug uh, say happened?
1: Well, basically, uh, these are Doug's words. He says, look, um, I talked to the manager, Kelly Curtis, when I was out in Tel Aviv Israel and we're flying there. And I asked him, please pick up. He said, no, I'm busy. I said, Okay, well, Axel's come up with this great idea and I want to find out if you guys are into it. And he said, no. And I said, well, hang on a second. Don't you have a responsibility to talk to your band members? When an idea comes to me, I at least discuss it with the band. And he said, "Don't tell me how to do my fucking job." <gasps> I know. Clutch the pearls again, Jimson. there you go. So, for Stone to not have heard about it, as I said, all that does merely validate what I had said, which is the manager didn't even discuss it with the band. So that's that's what uh, what Doug Goldstein says. Now, you know, appetite for distortion responded. Well, you know, this is a bummer because he would have done it. Would he was on the have show, been right? A, a Guns N' Roses U2 Pearl Jam tour, nineteen ninety three, and Doug says, well, Stone was saying, those are." the two biggest bands in the world at the time and Axel and his point of, gee, I want to make it happen so bad, all open. You don't even have to play us. I just want to, just want it to happen. Managers yet again can really, yeah, there you go. Drop, drop, drop in it while it's hot. Apparently as the expression goes.
0: Yeah. But, you know, only 20 some odd years later. Um, that's yeah. weird though, because, you know, the, apparently this same show talked to stone and he says a filthy rumor. Or gossip. Exactly. Or right? I know.
1: So that, that's it, It's almost like d- there's
0: I don't that doesn't make any sense to me. Disconnect. Like, now straight out of the bat, let's just assume that it that it would have gone through. To my opinion, this you, would you not have You got a worked. little
1: Metallica nugget that says this would have been a disaster, right? Oh,
0: that's right. That's you're leading me right through water here. So yeah, no, I mean, if you guys remember back in ninety two, uh Metallica and Guns N' Roses co headlined a tour. And uh, that did not go too well. The show in Montreal um, was a disaster for a completely separate reason. That's where James Hetfield got his arm and face burnt by a pyrotechnic because he stood in the wrong spot of the stage. Uh, but the rest of the tour was was a shambles because the, the two bands didn't get along, mostly because, of well, according to Metallica, Axel and his, you know, 50-foot ego ramps out, out into the crowd and just all these, you know, Axley-type things. So to have... Axel want Guns N' Roses and U2 and Pearl Jam to go on tour together, that doesn't really hold a whole lot of water to me. Because U2 doesn't seem like a kind of band that would ever, especially at that time, uh, give away headlining to Guns N' Roses. And there's no way that Guns N' Roses would say, we're playing second fiddle to U2. And even if Pearl Jam said, okay, we'd play first, those guys are so selfless compared to how Axel and those guys were acting at the time. There's no way that would have worked. they would have put together like a 20 show tour and then canceled the two shows in.
1: Yeah, I, I completely agree with you. This this was dead on arrival. But uh, like that's probably why Kelly Curtis said this, this is not happening. I'm not be, doing right? this to my guys. <laughs> I'm not.
0: <laughs> like when he says that to me, that he didn't tell the band, I think that's bullshit. I think he's shielding the band from from public retaliation from Axel because. I bet you Stone knew about this and said, fuck, I don't want to deal with this crap. And so he just gave a PR answer when Appetite for Distortion asked him about it. Oh, I, I didn't know. It's probably just rumors. I think he's a little man, Well, Batman
1: or, you know what? The guys were young. It's 1993, you know? It's fresh off of uh, um, 10 and, and heading into verses at this point. And, f- you know, Pearl Jam was really ascending at that point. I mean, really ascending. And, they and I they played with
0: you, too. They, they did and, and it was terrible for them. do you remember the, the those Italian shows? Yeah they were getting booed and no one was responding and Ed's like yeah. yelling at the crowd like there's yeah. that wouldn't have worked
1: no it wouldn't have worked but I can't say that it's not beyond the realm of possibility that Kelly just shot it down because he knew this wasn't good for the band and he might have also known that it could have caused friction because I could think of one band member mm. who was part of that band in 1993.
0: I bet Dave would have been, been, like, been can I sit absolutely in on, uh, over the
1: moon to do sit this. this. Don't cry. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Dave would have been all over. So I, I wouldn't be surprised if Kelly was like, I, I there is no point in throwing this grenade in the middle of this. Yeah. I mean, it's so
0: that's the kind of, you know, if, if let's assume that your perspective is right. And he actually didn't tell the rest of the band. That's just good management. That's why mm-hmm. you get paid the big bucks mm-hmm. to shield your, your band from things that you know, that are not going to, uh, not going to hold a lot of water and not going to, it's um, not going to work. No, it's not, not going to work. Yeah. Well, anywho, let's get to the main meat here. We've done this before. Like I said, we've done Jeff, his top five songs. We did Matt. According, according to us, we did Matt. We did a top three for Matt because he only has yeah. half, you know, two, three. They were a experience. good three though. They were a good three. Fantastic. Okay. I think we agreed, right? You are was number one.
1: Yeah, I think we both arrived
0: at that conclusion. So here we go. We're going to do Edward Jerome Vetter. Um, I went through the catalog. I went through Wikipedia and liner notes and put together a spreadsheet for us for for easy digestibility. And you see that, wow, Ed has written a lot of music for this band by himself. Not even- More so-
1: in in recent years, I think. Than oh, in the yeah, for
0: sure. Years. For sure. Much more in recent years. Yeah. But the amount, I thought that there'd be a lot of songs that he co-wrote, but he, I mean, he has, but I'm looking at the full list of songs that he's written music and lyrics to by himself. There's like 40 songs. That's a lot. So yeah, We it's... had a lot to choose from. And before we get into our top five, I have to, as is tradition on this show, give you a couple of honorable mentions. Sure. They almost got in. They they were so close. I've got three that come to mind. I could have said more, but I'm going to limit it to three. Okay. One of them is Insignificance. Wow. Okay. Yeah. I really think this is a strong song. One of the more musically diverse and complex songs that he's written, lyrically, as a criticism of Boeing, um, which is from the Seattle area. They were building bombs for us and for foreign countries. So, you know, when you when places around the world were getting decimated, and now these homeless citizens are coming out to check the debris and they see like you know made in usa on the shrapnel it doesn't really matter who's dropping the bombs because they were supplied by the us and that puts a bad taste in everyone's mouths around the around the world of us he saw that as a big problem i think he kind of came to that realization after the wto protests mm-hmm. the ending is just especially tremendous it just feels like you're falling out of the b2 of the b52 bomber like in dr Strangelove or something and it's just a very powerful song. And I appreciate the specificity of this anti-war nature. Because usually, I, you know. I like it, so,
1: when, you know? when Binaural dropped, it was one of my favorite tracks on the album.
0: It's really, really good. Another it's one strong. that I really liked was, uh, but it didn't quite, ugh, just barely didn't make the cut. Sad. Sad. Uh, fantastic song. It is. Another great main riff that propels the song forward in a unique and accentuated by Matt's drumming. And then, you know, it's a song about loss, coping with it, another story told through lyrics and the structure of the lyrics is different. It's it's quite interesting actually to hear the, the rhyme scheme in the verse. You have, the, it, it rhymes at the beginning and at the end of the line. He stayed in his room with memories for days. He faced an until a future laid to waste. Like it's, it's, I don't think I've ever had a book type rhyme scheme like that before the little fills that mike throws in between the lines the space the reverb delays you know soaked swells you get to the chorus and it's just straight ahead rock song love the juxtaposition of the verse to the chorus and then that bridge bam 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 Choo, doo, 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 doo. so good and then the, the pick scrape after forgotten from mike it's just it's just a tremendous song great solo well,
1: how it didn't make the cut We've talked about this. I'm telling you, man. tracking. I said it should have been there.
0: Oh, it absolutely have been on the album. That's 100% true. But this just goes to show how strong Ed's songs are. The last one I'll say is I Got Id. Oh. A few interesting things about, about this song is only two Pearl Jam members are actually on this song. Ed and Jack Irons. Neil Young played the other guitar and Brendan O'Brien played bass. Which okay. I did not know. Yeah. Um, also, it's id, not id. It's the Freudian term of id. Right. Um By the way, this word was also made uh, somewhat uh, in the spotlight in pop culture early in The Simpsons when Lisa plays the word in Scrabble to everyone else's befuddlement. Fun fact. <laughs> uh, it's a song about being alone and dreaming of true love and to a simpler extent, feeling something, anything positive. And the stages in this song are of equal value to me, of equal standard, Like, which isn't usually the case when you're thinking about the, the movements of a verse to a chorus to a bridge. They all kind of feel like they're the same um, quality and, and value, uh, even though you have different uh, stages of depression that you're going through as you go through the song. Again, a very simple chord structure and arrangement. If not for Neil's guitar solo at the end, it kind of feels like it could be unbalanced. But mm. for that long solo... Yeah. And um again lyrically it's it's more accessible than than not. It's easy to ground and grasp onto um as everyone has been to this place at some point in their lives. But that's a long way of saying that those three songs imagine how good the top 5 is going to be. What what are your honorable mentions? Tell me, you know, some some facts about some of the songs that you think are so good but just couldn't crack your top 5.
1: Uh Sad was on there. Okay. Uh, it, it's, my, it's probably my favorite track from the binaural recording sessions. And, I
0: probably uh, agree with you.
1: Yeah, so it's, it's definitely on there. I thought you, you succinctly and eloquently described what makes that song so great. So I'm, I'm, I'm going to let that sit and lie. Okay. Um, off He Goes, actually, is a song that I did not really take to for many years. Mm. Um, I thought it was too long. I, I didn't think it was particularly catchy. As I have matured, um, I found myself appreciating it more and more and more. Uh, you know, you look at a song like that, and uh, Ed said in 2001, it was a spin online interview, he said, the song was about being a, a shit friend. He mm-hmm. says, I'll show up and everything's great, and then all of a sudden I'm out of there. And uh, I thought that the, um, that the awareness and it's not self-deprecation it really is is just introspection to me was really profound um and i thought it was unique in the sense that a lot of what ed writes about is is kind of projected outward to the world um you see especially at that time in the band's career the first couple of albums was you know songs like not for you also an eddie vetter song um you know all these other tracks that are just kind of talking about social issues and some of its personal demons or personal grievances and what have you mm. and here was a song where he said you know what like i gotta own something here and and the accountability i thought was really remarkable and it occurred at a point in the band's tenure where i mean this is an album that almost tore them apart you know um i remember reading an interview with jeff where he said he'd just show up you play and he'd just go outside and just start like dunking hard you know what i mean just, Shooting hoops, just dunking, trying to break the glass because he was so just pissed during the recording. That's so that's the story behind uh, "Brother." Uh, uh, he got pissed. Well, stone. yeah, yeah.
0: <laughs> he stormed out of there and started dunking. According to Mike. Uh,
1: yeah. So I don't know, man. I kind of feel like um, this is a song that kind of marked a turning point for Eddie, where he really started to, to show a lot of growth. Um, and you know, you saw a song like "Around the Band," obviously, where we talked about this before. Um, the lullaby for Jack Irons kid and, and just what happens when you kind of turn that corner as a man. So my, my third one though is, is uh, there was a lot because you're right there. There really was a lot. Uh, I had a tough time juggling between these, but uh, it was kind of a toss up for me between thumbing my way and future days, but I'm going to go future days on this one. Uh, as soon as I heard those keys come in, at the end of the album, I felt like I was listening to something
0: really special. I think and this is a song... controversial pick, Paul, because I think a lot of fans don't care for Future Days, especially uh, the production uh, of Lightning Bolt in general.
1: I know. And and I, I got to say, man, I mean, I just I love the um, the atmosphere of the song. I think it's a beautiful ballad. You know, it's funny how the band said they they did sirens because they felt like people were always saying you guys have never done a ballad. So they wanted to have that classic band ballad mm-hmm. on, on the album. And uh, I think Future Days fills that void perfectly fine. Um, I mean, obviously, you had a song like Just Breathe on the the, the prior album, but Just Breathe feels very folksy to me. Mm -hmm. And I like it. It's kind of a pop folk song. But uh, Future Days just really resonates to me, and and it always has. And uh, it's very um, wispy in certain places, but it's it's also very... um, it, how do I say this he really projects the essence of the song in some of those lyrics and the chorus you know I believe and just the way that that comes yeah. in with the big swell and, and boom it's one of those songs where boom just kind of plays it beautifully live whenever you get a chance to hear it I want to say Brendan O'Brien though is the one that does it in the, in the, in the studio. studio yeah in I believe so and uh, it just it, it's nice man it, it really comes together nicely I'm surprised a lot of, a lot of folks don't like that song more
0: Hey, I'm, I'm with you. I've always appreciated that song. I know it can be a little schmaltzy, but, yeah, I th- but I mean, there's a reason why I chose that as my first dance song at my wedding. I just thought that the, the way that, you know, the vibe of the song and the lyrics just kind of fit that feeling. Yeah. And that's a good feeling. A, you should be celebrating this song. Oh, as a beautiful song, really as, is. You know, negative feelings. So, yeah. A lovely choice. So, we had some, we, guys, there's six songs right there that didn't even make the top five. What's going to be in the top five? I'll Madness. tell you right Okay, number five for me, Broom, Corduroy. Wow, number five, Corduroy. Now, the more modern intro to me is better than the album version, the the, the live version we've had over the last probably let's say, I don't know, twenty some odd years. But for the first handful of years, um, it was basically the the album version, which doesn't anticipate thing or doesn't kind of um, build the anticipation as much as the live version. So I'll give it that, but. Getting to the main uh, chord progression in the verse, it's like a musical balancing act and it feels like you're kind of wobbling and trying to walk across a log over a brook. Mm -hmm. Just getting to that point, it's really cool. The meter of the playing and the singing really moves you from one section to the next seamlessly. You know, the song is about fame, the media, pop culture. You know, it was trying to take everything from Ed, who who he was as a person. Um, They saw Ed as a commodity. You know The the song's name comes from him In his thrift store jacket His corduroy jacket That he got for $10 And then he sees Friggin Ricky Martin Playing someone who looks just like him With his hair and the corduroy jacket (laughs) On General Hospital It's like What the shit You you can buy but camp put on my clothes There you go The bridge is especially tense With that simple chord change With that one note changing It's a dissonance that Really elevates the lyrics of Everything has changed Absolutely nothing's changed what a line. I know Diego from Corduroy loves that section so much. This yep. is for you, buddy. Um, and the, the outro. I mean, can you beat an outro live than this song with that just that ramp up from the bridge into that wee, wee, just, yeah. you know, Mike going nuts for two, three, four minutes? It's just, it's a true, true classic in every sense of the word. So, Corduroy number five, what do you got?
1: Well, for me, we're going a little softer than that. Okay. We're going uh, the end closer off backspace lovely choice it, it, it uh it's a special song man it really really is um you know it's another ballad obviously but uh eddie had told the toronto globe that uh, he had like half the song ready to go you know he uh, was recording the guitar parts and he had most of the lyrics maybe half the lyrics he said that a, a buddy of his, a, well, actually it may not have been a buddy, it was a friend, is all we know, it was a friend called from Spain. And he couldn't pick up the phone because he was recording those guitar parts, right? And uh, he checks the message and apparently this friend said something that enabled him to write the second verse. And in 20 minutes, the whole song was done. And I would love to hear what was said in that message. And he says, that's how it happened on this record. I, it was writing the quick ones. There was no room for the other stuff. Um, I thought that was pretty serendipitous In a mm. lot of ways uh, There are some strings You got some French horns Something that the band had never done before And uh, he he said that It really became emotional When they laid the strings down And he, he was really moved by the song uh, When he was a kid The song Street in the City Off Rough Mix by Pete Townsend And he loved that juxtaposition Of the strings and the acoustic guitar and it was this, like, full-on orchestral arrangement that I guess his father-in-law had did, had done, pardon me. And it sounded like one dude playing, and he's got this orchestra behind him. And it wanted, you know, it, it made Ed want to explore that, that atmosphere. And what has always stood out to me was Stone's reaction to this song, because Stone told Billboard at the time that he thought this song would stand out as one of Eddie's greatest songs ever. He said, to have a song that is so simple in terms of the vocal melody and delivery, for the words to have that much impact, to flow without a complex rhyme strategy. The words, rhyme, but that's the thing you think about. I just think it is a stunning example of Eddie on his own. There are some strings and horns, but that song he just came in and played us a demo he'd recorded the night before on his home four track. It's just ridiculously good. He just about breaks his voice. It's so vulnerable. I cannot... I, I couldn't possibly describe the song in a way that, that more accurately captures the essence of what the song is than what Stone just said. So it's it's a clear number five for me.
0: And the breath at the very end. The gasp. Mm-hmm. That was the perfect I mean, ending. Every time to the I
1: album. Was... <laughs> it might be the best ending, like, just second of a Pearl Jam album.
0: Oh, you got to re- redo your... Uh album closers now no just (laughs) as it's second it's it's an ending second it's it's a A goosebump moment for sure every time every time well my number four is porch cool porch is a hectic three and a half minute song on the record and uh it packs a lot into itself every riff feels like pure anxiety and someone rushing to get everything off of their chest the ascending chords in the refrains kind of amp up the tension to at the breaking point. The first of which is like taking the roller coaster to the top to head straight back down into the next verse. The second time is like going through a loop de loop at the bottom of the roller coaster until you're being dragged back up to the top. That's that long, well, live, it's the long interlude portion. Yeah. But this is the, it brings back down, you hit the E chord, or that E note, and it's just kind of like, it's that, you know, the long interlude. The last time we do this is the very end of the song as we, the listeners, hang there, suspended in emotion, for a second before the two ride cymbals, ding, ding, and then the release, the musical exhale with the stroke of that E uh, for the very last time. Whichever way you take the lyrics, it's all about ramping up the tension and releasing it like a roller coaster. The fact that this is magnified during the live shows with the middle section extended only adds to the emotion of the song. So I've heard it talked about like, oh, it's about a relationship or, oh, it's about leaving middle America behind and being yourself. You know, I've heard all these different explanations, but for me, it doesn't make a difference what what it's about. The music amplifies whatever the meaning is for you in a fantastic way. Yeah, well said. What do you got for number four?
1: I'm going back to Corduroy. Uh, Don't have too much more to add than what you said, because I think you said it very, very well. But going back to the title here, You know, Ed had said that he bought his jacket for like 10 or 12 bucks or something, and he ended up seeing one sold for $650. Yeah. And it's just that idea that you're being co opted, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And he even refers to it like that. But if you look at the liner notes in Vitology, he actually says that it's more of a person's relationship with a million people. In fact, that song's almost a little too obvious for me. That's why instead of the lyric sheet, we put in an x-ray of my teeth from last January and they're all in very bad shape, which was analogous to my head at the time. Mm -hmm. So I I thought that uh, in terms of writing a song that just captures a moment of time in the band's life, I thought that uh, the song, the song really stands out in that respect, but also you could make the argument that Pearl Jam does mid-tempo better than any other band in the 90s, any other rock band oh, in the okay. 90s. Of course. And uh, this is, theoretically, you I, again, I couldn't really argue with this. It, you could argue that it's the greatest mid-tempo song in the band's catalog. Um, and I say that for a few reasons, but again, just going to go with this one instead. There's a review from Chris True of All Music, and this was the review of that song. He says... Corduroy. Simple, straightforward rock, the kind that Pearl Jam excelled at. Classic Pearl Jam. Earnest lyrics and vocals, powerful classic sounding guitars, loose yet in control rhythm section, bass-driven and tension-filled breakdown with Eddie mumbling in the background, of course, is all here. Every, I'm sorry, even down to the loose jam style outro. It you it's the quintessential Pearl Jam song. Corduroy. So it's
0: I have got to be in the top 5. It has to be, and I've argued that it might be their best song live. I know people I would that. say Even Flow or they might say Porch which would trust me those are great choices. Something about Corduroy. And, and what's funny is our friends over at Live on Four Legs tweeted today about I guess it's actually a couple of days ago. Uh what was the first live song you heard? And mine was Corduroy. Wow. Hartford 98, they opened the show with Corduroy. Uh I just associate that song with a great live um, experience. So yeah, has to be in the top five. Nice. Going to number three, back to Vitalogy. We're doing Better Man. Oh. Doing Better Man. I'm gonna put it right here at three. It's a legendary main riff, of course. Everyone, and I mean everyone, knows this riff and it's perfectly balanced by the organ from Brendan O'Brien. It's another set of lyrics that's uh, a wonderful story as opposed to poetry. And this one is is pretty obvious and pretty literal. And it's a lot more easily accessible to the average listener. And Ed knew that, which is why it was shelled for a long time. Uh, for even back from the bad radio days, even though it was initially recorded during the Versus sessions. So it's been, it was sitting around and they finally put it out. One of the greatest sing-along choruses of all time. Yep. And one of the most famous chord progressions of all time, DAG. And that's it. That's the rest of the song is the DAG with the wailing vocals underneath everything. We've got the organ there kind of keeping everything afloat. You know, it's it's simple. It's anthemic. It's heartbreaking. It's cathartic. I can only imagine what his mom felt like the first time she heard this and what she feels like all these years later seeing how people have connected to it. It's, it's one of those generational songs that you might not even know who Pearl Jam is, but you know that song. <laughs> what do you got for number three?
1: I went with the exact same track, man. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> hence
0: yeah. your silence. There you go. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Tell um, me more. Tell me more.
1: You know, it, it, obviously the song is rooted in Eddie's personal history. Mm-hmm. Um, I love the organ only cut with Brendan on uh the Vitology reissue. I think that there's a part of me that almost wonders if, if that's the version we should have heard on the album. You know, Eddie's said that he didn't want to put it on an album because it sounded too poppy. So he just kept resisting it, right? You, you referenced that. But imagine if it was just this beautiful, just single, just cathartic, aching song and uh, a tragic song in a lot of ways which just a man playing, with it it, it would be almost like a precursor to what we get with songs like The End and and Mm. Future Days and, and, you know, um, River Cross and all these other tracks. And so live, for sure, get the band in, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Um, But I don't know, there's something about that version that I think just, you find the soul of the song in that cut. The actual band version itself, I mean, it it rocks, you know what I mean? It's just, it's a fun little... I don't want to call it a jangle. You know what I mean? It's, it's a great pop rock song. And um, it's a beautiful rendition of what it feels like to be stuck in something and not really knowing how to get out of it yeah. and almost staying for what you think are the right reasons that could be the wrong reasons to some uh, and maybe the, the wrong reasons to you as well. But... Lyrically speaking, um, you know, when Ed kind of channels, and he did this for the first couple of albums, when he really channels that that childhood and, and that family dynamic of his, it's amazing how many of those songs are just iconic. So, Well,
0: they're iconic know. because his childhood and his, what he felt about his childhood connected to so many people. And no yeah. one realized that because, you know, the tough love of the 60s and 50s and all that shit, you know that started, we started seeing that it didn't work too well. Yeah. <laughs> looking for, looking for, you know, a way to release and they found it in, in Ed in, in Pearl Jam, you know, talking about a uh, better man without the rest of the band. I wonder if the reason why they kept the band is the same reason why you never hear release by just Ed. You yeah. know, they could have, they've yeah. had opportunities to play a release, maybe like, you know, first out of an encore kind of thing. And when, they, when they're mm-hmm. playing on their chairs, they could have done release that way in a, in a new fun way, but they always do it with the band. Yeah. I wonder why, it, I wonder why that is. I don't know. All right. Number two. Off He Goes. I love it. Hey, I love yeah. Off He Goes, man. And you, you said it really well earlier. It's a song that I just did not get when it came out um and it took me a while to really dial in and again you said it well where it's introspective how many how many songwriters are able to uh reach inside and be honest about something negative uh, about themselves and and not do it in a in a cheese ball way yeah, you, know, you have some of these new metal bands like, I'm shit, I hate my life, I'm terrible. And it's like, okay, <laughs> I don't really buy that because you're playing in Um, You know, right out of the gate, it's the first of many beautiful lyrics. Um, it's a simile about what a man looks like. And, and you know, you can picture it perfectly. The, his face seems pulled and tense, like he's riding on a motorbike in the strongest winds. <laughs> so good. So good. Yeah, right nice, out of the gate. Good. You know, when Ed tells a story, and we've talked about this last week, it's just really, really good. Um, I I, I mentioned this a few episodes back, but I love the way he sings perfectly. I know you don't like it too much. It bugs you, but I think it's kind of cool adding an extra syllable. Perfectly. Perfectly. We'll all be relieved. Yeah. Uh,
1: Don't start. Don't (laughs) start with it.
0: (laughs) Sometimes you got to, it's very Shakespearean to make that happen. It's okay. If Billy can do it, Betty can do it. (laughs) There's a way that Stone and Mike change their playing after the There He Goes that seems to accelerate the mood without changing the tempo, if that makes sense. Like they're playing the notes that were merely implied before. And it kind of comes back a couple of times, including the outro. The first time is after the first verse. And so, okay, now the man has left or Eddie has left. The second verse is sung about the man while he's away. And then when you hear these guitars come back again, it's the man returning. The third verse is the final time that we're with the man, quote. Mm -hmm. And the third final time that we hear this, you know, walking acoustic guitar thing from the two guys is the man leaving for good. Ed famously said, and you mentioned the quote from that magazine, but he said in Catowice, Poland, that it's about being an asshole friend, which he admitted that he was being (laughs) or that he had been before. So in not one, but two places did he admit that he has been a shitty friend. In time, but I just love how the music, on top of the lyrics, kind of brings you this perspective of depth of like actually going somewhere and coming back or being separated from the subject of the song and then having them return to the forefront. It's just a weird dynamic to have audibly that I think is yeah. just so brilliant. Love it. What do you got, number two?
1: Immortality. It it is my favorite track off of Vitology. Uh, When I first heard it, it was the song that a buddy of mine actually... We both got this album for Christmas, to be honest with you. And I'll never forget my buddy calling me at the time. And he's like, hey, what'd you get? I said, I got Vitology. He goes, oh, dude, so did I. Have you listened to it yet? I said, yeah. He goes, Immortality, man. I said, I know. (laughs) Really? At that young age? At that young of an age, yeah. I mean, it just that song was um i love the build-up but there's just something about the rhythm to that song that really stands out um you really get the 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 drumming on it is outstanding um the guitars are just they're euphoric man in a lot of ways (laughs) um i know that's, that's that sounds like a weird word to use with immortality after I use it for like a song like Retrograde. It's like, how do you go there? Anyway, um, look, there's a lot of uh, speculation that this is about Kurt Cobain. And it may be. Whether it is or isn't doesn't really matter to me. Uh, it's probably the darkest song in Pearl Jam's catalog from an emotional standpoint. I mean, you've got other songs like Dirty Frank and Once and things like that that's just about coming unhinged. But this is a song where you just give up on life. And life is really the greatest gift that you have. And when you listen to the interview that Eddie had with Stern, where he talks about Chris Cornell and he addresses suicide and he says, you know, did you ever, did you ever think about something like that? And you mentioned this in our last episode, you know, Eddie said, no, no, I didn't, you know. Um, and he talks about how he feels that it's very selfish and that when you have kids, that this is something that you have to got to power through because it's not just you that you're leaving behind you know it's not just you that's Mm. been hurt and ultimately you just create a legacy of hurt in your wake and this this feeling of this protagonist or this subject in the song just lost in the dark and coming to the conclusion that the only way out is this path to immortality that the implication being is through suicide and uh I'm not saying the song glorifies that because it doesn't, but it's a really great song in its ability to articulate the feeling and um, the burnout of that condition. Mm. And I think musically that gets reflected in the song as well.
0: Well, let's just stick with Immortality. It's my number one. Wow. Love this song. Um, Simple arpeggio. On a, on a pretty basic chord. Um, it's a two chord verse and a two cho- two chord chorus. If you don't, count pretty the, basic, right? If you, if you don't cut the A at the very end, it's four chords is the crux of the song. I mean, that's yeah. Are be, these power chords. No, 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 no. It's a it's a C nine, C nine, and then uh, that's the intro. And then the verse is an E minor seven and a F sharp over D sus two or some shit like that. But um, the beauty is the vibe this song creates, yeah. and and Ed's vocal delivery. So I guess I think you need to have a simple chord progression for for that to really shine. Yeah. You know, the swinging sensation from the strumming style and Dave's drumming gives almost a seasick effect. And no one really knows how much lyrics have to do with Kurt, as you mentioned. The general theme of depression, suicide is met perfectly by the bed of music created for it, and that's kind of really all that matters. Yeah. One of Ed's most poetic set of lyrics, which says a lot. Yeah, uh, that this song is number one for me because I believe Ed is best when he tells a story. I think I think you also think that uh, the second solo is so cool because it starts out over this really quiet landscape before suddenly having to fight over the raucousness of the backing band, accentuated by Dave's ride cymbal. It's like a warning of sorts that we're coming to an end, perhaps with that aching a chord just straining 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 before and then uh, serenity again just for a second yeah. and then aids uh, aids ed's aching voice in lines like i cannot stop the thought of running in the dark you know open the song back up the backing band lifting from the serene to the violence right behind him in their volume and intensity to the stripped and sold mom line and then the final line some die just to live fucking hell i mean if that isn't such a perfect summation of what some think immortality is, yeah. I, I don't know. I mean, it, it's a possible nod to Neil Young's Hey, Hey, My, My as well. Wouldn't be surprising, given, given how uh, integral in Ed's life Neil was at that time. Yeah. Um, the outro is this repetitive droning chord note thing with Dave's sticks dancing on the cymbals, fading to black. Live, they jam it out in like this semi-psychedelic send-off. Uh, it's just, it's just a really, really, really good song. And it's, it's not even that complicated, but it's just so damn good. And if you want a great modern version, by the way, I know we don't always put out versions that aren't the live kind of week. You're
1: not going to drop some seether on me, are you?
0: I am not going to drop some seether on All you. Right. However, I did see that. No, <laughs> I, uh, a great modern version. Check it out on YouTube. Columbia, South Carolina from 2016, April 21st, 2016. There's video of this. Uh, just kind of doing my research on this song, I happen to find that, and it's a really good modern version. Mike is on fire. So give
1: give us that one again. Did you say Columbia, Columbia South, South Carolina. Carolina okay. Twenty sixteen. Twenty sixteen. Okay. Yeah,
0: man. Just a few I'll, years I'll ago. It's out. really really good. And uh, it's, it's it's an extended outro. Matt is incredible. It's there's like a drum solo thing at towards the end of it. It's it's great. It's great. So, anyways, immortality number one for me. What's number one for you?
1: I think this might be the greatest up-tempo Pearl Jam song
0: up. Let me guess. Let me guess. Go for it. Uh, MFC. No. Uh,
1: it uh, is a car song though.
0: Uh, why am I blanking? Oh, RVM. Bingo. There you go. Yeah.
1: Rear view mirror, man. Um, for a lot of reasons uh, When I first heard Versus It was my favorite song On the track uh, Sorry On the album That and And WMA This song It's one of the first That we We really Get Ed featured On guitar And You know Stone came out later And said that they, look, We played it Exactly like he wrote it So it it is an Ed song Through and through You get Mike On an Ebo Um at the end of the studio cut, and I, and we've all heard this, but I don't think we ever knew the context of it until you you dig around later. You hear what sounds like drumsticks like bouncing off a wall or something. And I thought d- Dave just threw them. Did he not throw them? Well, he does throw them. Right. He he. And in my head, I always thought that just you know because whenever I'm driving and I'm listening to that song, I am pounding the wheel <laughs> and I'm just, and I I mimic <laughs> I mimic the drumstick yeah, toss. You know, Of course. who doesn't? Right? We all do it. But what we don't realize is that it's not, hey, I'm throwing these sticks because, you know, that rocks. I'm 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 throwing the sticks because Brendan O'Brien was crawling up my ass during the recording on this track. Apparently, he throws his sticks in response to the pressure that was placed on him by Brendan O'Brien during the recording of the track. So <laughs> it, it he throws them out of frustration. Apparently, also. After he recorded the track, he punched a hole through the snare drum and threw it off the side of a cliff. So I don't know, why, I don't know what it was about. i had never heard that. But it's it's arguably one of Dave's best performances. I mean, it, it is ferocious. Man. Yeah, this whole song from beginning to end is just ferocious. And uh, it's funny because when Ed finished the the vocals to the song, I, I guess he had a, an issue with it being too catchy because it is, it's incredibly catchy. And uh, it's got an awesome hook man. it's, I mean, it's a muscular guitar, but it's got a hook and you don't often see that this early from the band. Um, The delivery is just so raw and clenched and just vicious. And he just lets it out at the end. And it's really the ending to this song that I've always felt gave it its lasting power. And I say that because you listened to those lines, saw things clear once you were in my rearview mirror, and I've always believed that that was the perfect reflection of what it feels like to to basically, you know, leave behind this this hopeless relationship, to succumb to the pain and say I, I, I'm I'm done. I'm ready to move beyond this at this point in time, and you get that in those lines you know, saw things clear once you were in my rearview mirror, and the delivery of those Mm -hmm. lines is so profound. I mean, the feeling that you must have when you finally walk away, the way he sings those lines, every single one of us has been in something toxic once before, a Mm -hmm. a work relationship with you and a job, uh, 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 you and a significant other. When you finally extricate yourself from that, listen to that line, at the end of Rear View Mirror, that's what it feels like, you know? And uh, it just, its I think it's, it's, I mean, there's a reason to me <laughs> why, I mean, obviously symbolically and metaphorically, there's a reason why their Greatest Hits album was called Rear View Mirror.
2: Mm-hmm. But it's
1: funny because the song is about leaving behind this this the hopeless relationship, you know, the, this painful experience and the past and moving forward. And what's interesting is the band knew when they released Greatest Hits that they were not breaking up. So I felt like it was almost a way to kind of move beyond what had been that era in the band's career and then take a step forward. And it's awesome because the, the cover of the album is Ed's foot. It looks like it's about to step on you. You know what I mean? It's almost like he's ready to step on this era of the band's tenure. Um, so there's just so much great stuff with this track and, and it's, it's epic. Uh-oh, is that Jason on guitar?
0: So Love so it. good, isn't it? So so good. And there you go. Look at that. We get I know. we get some live action, a little, little live music. Um that was terrible playing. My guitar was out of tune, but there you go. Um <laughs> one thing that bugs me about that song live is the fact that they never have anybody sing
2: "refume mirror." Yeah, right.
0: They sing, once you, once you, and Ed sings right. his part. But no one ever sings the Riviera Mirror part. You have like four extra singers on the stage. Yeah.
1: And they all do it for sirens,
0: right? Yeah. <laughs> what the hell?
1: Like, I don't get that
0: Like either. sometimes if I'm feeling a little bit, you know, um, if I'm feeling really good at the show and it's happening, I will sing the part in the crowd.
1: Yeah, somebody has to.
0: Somebody has to sing that part a great choice it's a great Thanks, choice man. and it always gets me jacked up and the lights i'm surprised and... that
1: didn't make your top five it wasn't even an honorable mention dude that this... was my how awesome is that my number one 80 better <laughs> song not only did it not make your top five it wasn't even an honorable mention dude, for you I'm that is at, delicious i'm looking at these 40 <laughs> songs
0: right these 40 songs that are purely ed and it's like it's like the the, the top half
1: it's a greatest they're hits all, catalog like, of right, itself.
0: You know, when you're ranking things, it's like saying, okay, my one through eight are all like 99 through 92 and RVM's like 91. And then you have other songs that are like, you know, 72 or 64.
2: Yeah.
0: Like they're all right there. And I'm splitting hairs trying to pick up the ones that, that, that do the most for me. But I mean, Jesus gang, what do what do you think? Do you think we did a okay job here? I mean, you didn't even have porch in your top five.
1: You didn't even have porch at all. I, I Honestly, I did. I had it as my number two for a while. And then I revisited this this morning. And I I, I thought to myself, because I didn't have betterment in there at first. I know, blasphemous. I was thinking, I've got to put that in there. And I, I put it in place of porch. And then I was moving porch down. I said, ah, I like immortality more than porch, though. Oh, uh, corduroy holds up to me more than porch. <laughs> right? and, then before I, and then I got to the end. I'm like, well, I'm, I don't want to kick the end off for porch. You know what? Eh, we'll just move porch off. But it wasn't we'll even, porch on the porch.
0: But it wasn't even an honorable mention. You didn't even mention it. <laughs> well, well, I think because I could have, but I felt like talking about future days. You know what, though? Uh, that's a good, that's a good bit of teasing from you. If you had yeah. said porch there, people would be like, oh, he probably still has porch.
1: Yeah. Right. They probably expected that to be my number one. Well,
0: there you go. You, you expected incorrectly, people. Yeah. But not for me. Not for I brought you. the goods at number four with Porch. All right. So we've, we've ticked Ed off of our chart there. We have uh, Stone and Mike, the two guitar players. You'd think they would have been our first couple of choices, but no. No. Huh? So that, that's who remains.
1: They'll get their time in this. They song. will get
0: their time. But first, we have to go to our live cut of the week. Paul, our live cut of the week comes from Riot Act, and it comes from I Am Mine. The selfish, they're all standing
2: in line Faithing and hoping to buy themselves time We are to figure as each breath goes by
0: only on my mind. Okay, Paul. I am mine, right? I think it's the second or third song off the record that we have chosen here. Uh, you've chosen the f- very first verse. Mm-hmm. Um, what about this particular verse in in la- the larger context of the song? What does it do for you?
1: You know, I I, I think of this song. It's a, it's a song about existentialism in a lot of ways, and um, it's about owning yourself in the moment and seeing that even though we are small and insignificant in the grand scheme of the cosmos, um, if there's one thing you can't control, it's who you are, what you choose to do, how you believe and feel and think, and that's not nothing. And, um, this ability to, to kind of look around and it's funny you know he's he, he, the people that are standing in line fainting and hoping to buy themselves time he, he refers to them as selfish now you could easily refer to this uh or interpret this i should say uh as kind of a knock on on those who who buy into faith and then look at look at faith as a way to kind of, kind of kind of buy themselves time beyond life but we just had an election and For whatever reason, when I was listening to the song and I heard the selfish, they're all standing in line. I just thought of people in line to vote, fainting and hoping to buy themselves time. And it's almost like you get these folks that are at least on the side that lost. Mm. You get these folks that are kind of like hoping to buy themselves time for this version of America that so many people just could not wait to move beyond. And, and I'm sure, you know, the opposite is true for some folks in prior elections. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? And this idea that there are these mechanisms at work that are somewhat beyond your control and in some cases beyond your care because you get this line, I figure as each breath goes by, I only own my mind. And it's this lack of a desire to want to be so invested in changing the minds of others. And I feel like that just defines so many conversations that we have with people. Oh my God. Yeah. Right. Mm -hmm. It's this idea of like, I need to be heard, but people conflate being heard with being right. And they're not the same thing. And you can be heard. Like we can have a disagreement and I can hear you and I can empathize. I can acknowledge what you're saying and truly communicate to you that you have been heard. And you as a person, I don't mean you literally, but a person could look back at me and say, I don't feel like you're hearing me simply because I don't agree or share this sentiment. And I feel like this song really captures the one thing we can control, which is us, you know, us as our own individuals. And um, I thought it was really, really interesting departure from a lot of what we've heard from Pearl Jam in the sense that there's so much outcry in a lot of the songs about what can't be controlled. And here was a song that kind of takes solace in the one thing that you can.
0: Yeah. Be yourself. Mm -hmm. Be comfortable that all you can control in life is who you are and that that is enough. Yeah. I mean, too many people concern themselves with the things they cannot control. They concern themselves with material items. They stress themselves out, focusing on what they don't have or or who they aren't. You need to focus on what you do have and who you are. Be aware of it and be grateful for it. I I believe this song was written with the victims of Roskilde in mind. So there's Mm. an added layer of promoting living in the now recognizing your worth in yourself now before it's too late. It's one of those rare positive songs and uplifting songs for me, punctuated by Mike's solo at the outro, which feel which has a more it has a more uh, kind of positive vibe to it. When I first heard the song, I didn't actually care for it. Yeah. I thought it was I thought it it sounded kind of like nice and positive and I'm like where's the angry rockers that I latched onto and much like many songs from when I was younger that I didn't really attach to I've seen you know like long road like inside job like all these songs that I didn't really get um now I get and it makes total sense and especially in the context of now I mean Ed goes on and on and on about you know, uh, young girls and teenage girls focusing so much on Instagram and getting likes and, and kind of putting their value on that kind of bullshit as opposed to just actually realizing who they are and what they have to offer as opposed to being defined by what other people think of you. Right. And that's kind of, I think, tied into this a little bit. So, you are you. I am mine. Own it. Be proud of it, right? Yep. Let's go to our live cut of the week. Live cut, Paul. Riot Act Tour. What part of that massive, massive Riot Act Tour are we going to? And when? We're going to Japan.
1: Jason. Ooh. We're going specifically to Tokyo on March 3rd, 2003. Live at the Budokan. Yeah, man. Uh, you know, a lot of the venues on this this tour in Japan were smaller. Some of them had like a thousand people in them, but the, uh, the Budokan arena is actually really large. So it was, it was more in line and congruent with the types of shows that you'd see on out, out here in the West. But the shows started early. Like the band would like the doors would open at five or six, the band was on by 7.00 PM. It, 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 you know, people were out eating and drinking by 10. I mean, it was not this like late night and you get out and it's midnight and you get home. I mean, they went on early because of that, you know, there's this misconception that those tours weren't, wouldn't, they weren't very good because, oh, you know, it's a bunch of Japanese businessmen in suits and ties and coming from work, and it's all corporate. Furthest thing from the truth. A lot of these folks were young professionals, but they were, they were literally coming straight from work. That's why they were dressed like that. And I think the band made a, a couple of jokes about that. But they went in a very different approach with this tour. They kind of pivoted, and the set lists are really unique. And they kind of have this, like, um, in-the-studio vibe to them. Hmm. And so the the, the quieter tracks, the acoustic stuff really stands out. The mid-tempo stuff just kind of has a very measured approach to it. And when they do rock out, they just bring it. I mean, they just hammer it. And for me, what really has always stood out about this tour, all these bootlegs. I mean, if you can get your hands on any of the Japan bootlegs, they all are fantastic because the sound quality is superb. It's arguably, you know, that they release all these albums live now, right? Every show they do, you can find it. I've yet to hear sound quality better on these live boots that they produce than what you'll hear on the Japan shows. They rival, to me, what you get out of the uh, Vault hmm. releases. They're really, really good. Um, this particular version here, I just thought sound wise was exceptional, and the band they were, like I said, they were they were tight. Uh, it was measured, and it just comes out crisp, and it's just an outstanding version of the version of the song that I thought was a, a wonderful complement to the whole atmosphere and context of the show in which the song is played. All
0: right, March third, two thousand three, Tokyo, Japan. of japan are a courteous but lovely crowd and you're right the sound quality is tremendous early on in the in tours can be a bit of a wild card they could come out of the gate and crush it like in 95 oddly enough in australia again um or they could take some time to get into get into the groove but uh yeah japan was notoriously very fun and this show uh does not disappoint
1: yeah. And I will say too that uh, if you go to the the porch, the message boards on um, Pearl Jam's uh, community, right? community.pearljam.com, mm-hmm. there's a great discussion about the 2003 tour of Japan. And uh, there's a, a poster here Ridley. It says Ridley Bradabout, but just says Ridley. August of 2013, put together a uh, a compilation from this this uh, particular series flack and wave files here it's two discs it's about a gigabyte in size and he's uh, kind of got like this best of from this tour so it's two discs and um if you're if you're kind of into the uh the 2003 tour you're you're curious about the sound you don't own any of these boots see so if you can't uh, google this just 2003 tour of japan compilation um pearl jam uh message board here and he's got basically, or she—I don't know—right? Got tracks uh, all over the place here. So there's 17 on disc one, and there's there's 20 on disc two. And
0: so it's kind of like their best of of the Japan tour.
1: Essentially, yes. Or at least the, this this particular fan's uh, Interesting. opinion, right? So so you know what? It I'm always down to hear a comp. You know, give me a mixtape of Japan. Let's do it. <laughs>
0: <laughs> take that out of context give me a mixtape of japan
2: <laughs> that
0: sounds like it could be like the title of an indie film or something it does doesn't? It? or some show on like pop or so, i don't know anywho uh there you go gang another episode in the books and um you know like i said at the beginning of this show uh tomorrow is another live stream show featuring um Ed and Jill and a bunch of their famous friends, all um, trying to raise some money and awareness for uh, EV research. Venture into Cures is the big thing. Um, And Ed's going to be playing a new song, maybe two. And don't forget, the pre-show at 7 Eastern, 4 Pacific, uh, 8 PM Rio time, our friends in Black Circle will be performing. And, um, you know, I think we might have to talk to them one more time.
1: I think I, they might have something to share.
0: You might have, you know what? I'm, I'm going to give Lenny and Luis and Sergio and Gabriel and Nick a call. We might have to give them, we, let's just talk to them. Let's just, let's just let's get it. This. Let's get them on the horn. Let's do so this. So by the time you're listening to this, new Black Circle chat, it's happening. Let's just do it. Let's just say it's happening right now. Like and uh, we will see you in mere in mere hours from when you're listening to this and uh we hope you have a lovely time and until that moment you've been listening to the
1: state of love and trust yeah.